Welcome to the Manol 100 Centenary Podcast, Episode 4, part of the Decade of Centenaries program. As we move along the timeline of events of 100 years ago, the campaign of independence had resulted in the signing of the Articles of Agreement for a treaty between Great Britain and Ireland, and a provisional government was formed. There were no women negotiators of those Articles of Agreement, no women in that provisional government. TDs who had voted against its acceptance in Dáil Éireann refused to remain part of that assembly. All six women TDs voted to reject it. And now, as war loomed in the months of May and June of 1922, a civil war, a number of women became self-appointed peacemakers. As we now look to a more inclusive and complex history of this period, to examine this now, 100 years on, it seems timely to speak to the 21st century women involved in peacebuilding. Who better to speak to then than our first female president in Ireland, lawyer, senator, who's been advocating for the rights of women globally, UN High Commissioner, and now the Chair of the Elders. It seems fitting that Mary Robinson might assist us in our reading of this history. We begin our conversation with the importance of hearing women's voices. I found in my Foundation on Climate Justice um, that it was important to get the voices of grassroots women, indigenous women, young women to the table, and many of them have now become very good friends. And when I wrote a book on climate justice, there were 11 stories and nine of them involved women um, um, making their communities more resilient. But of course, there were also two good men. Um, and uh, now, you know, the elders reach out in particular to young women. We, we, we are very engaged in the intergenerational dialogue on the uh, climate crisis. Can we say that women were peacemakers? When nothing came of those exchanges? Those meetings, when there are no formal recordings, no minutes of those meetings. Rosamond Jacob wrote in her diary, they met because of the need for peace and to stop, as she described, the sufferings of the people. Peace is so important uh, and that is realised when suddenly you lose that context of living in peace. Look at what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. And there have been many moments in, you know, in my own life. Um, as a student, I was aware of the growing conflict in Northern Ireland, the peace marches. Some of my friends were marching, Kevin Boyle and others. Uh, I was very aware of the discrimination against the Catholic minority, the discrimination in housing and education in so many areas and the protest to that. And then afterwards, the presence of the British Army, the uh, response to that, particularly by the IRA, etc. And trying to uh, navigate uh, how to uh, speak for uh, the need for reform in Northern Ireland, but not um, physical violence to accomplish that. And uh, then, of course, in my later time, even as president, um, I tried to work for peace in places like Somalia, where there was famine, or in Rwanda, 
uh, where there had been a genocidal killing, etc., speaking up for, for, for Ireland. But it was really in my five years as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights um, that I uh, understood just how terrible uh, war is, especially for women. Her words, how terrible war is, especially for women, makes me think of those historic peace delegates who lived through years of wars, both on the domestic front, but internationally too. In 1922, delegates included Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, Agnes O'Farrelly, Rosamond Jacob, Louis Bennett, Meg Connery, Charlotte Despard, Maud Gone McBride, Edith Webb, and a Miss Scarlet and a Miss O'Connor. One of the best known of the women, the Irish Women's Franchise League's Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, took part in those peace delegations in 1922. Her papers are now housed in the National Library of Ireland. Decades of correspondence, circulars, handbills and documents, with wordings such as an appeal to women worldwide to advocate disarmament. A crumpled typescript, a hundred years old, which was framed in Vienna at the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom in 1921. Hannah Sheehy Skeffington had preserved this along with a myriad of other related material, literature from societies and organisations that formed during the First World War. The documents speak of women, of the misery and social disorganisation caused by the present war, it reads. Another item is a pamphlet from the Women's Peace and Progress Society, known as the Women's Peace Army. They advocate the need for women to work for the development of national morals and international goodwill. And they enrol women throughout the world as soldiers of humanity in a peace army. They pledge to war against war. As I read these documents and letters, I see the names of Hannah's friendship network the Women's Franchise League based in London with Charlotte Despard as its president. During the campaign of independence in Ireland, moved by the suffering of the people, the widowed Mrs Despard had moved to Dublin. Now too she was part of the deputation to prevent an Irish civil war. She had a long past working for many causes, votes for women, the rights of women workers. Hannah's husband had been trying to stop looting in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising. A pacifist protesting war, he was shot dead. Hannah travelled across the United States, telling her own story, protesting against militarism. You can see the photographs in the press of the time, the grieving widow and her young son. She set aside her own grief to protest injustice, rejected offers of monetary compensation, and by her efforts, you can see a path directly to peace. She understood the horrors of war. As we talk of these women's life stories, one always seeks comparisons. I ask Mary Robinson a question so often asked of women in power. Who were the role models? Had she grown up knowing of these Irish women? Not in detail, because unfortunately, uh, we weren't taught Irish history properly in school. Uh, we were taught about Napoleon and about, you know, uh, for some reason, uh, that period, I think, was too painful to be well taught in Irish schools. So I wasn't as aware as I would like to have been. But I was certainly aware of the suffragette movement uh, in, a, in, a, in a general sense. 
Mary Robinson grew up in the west of Ireland, a child of Ireland in the 1940s and 1950s. What were the experiences that formed her? I grew up in an Ireland where women didn't feel um, that they were equal to men or girls, didn't feel they were equal to boys. Uh, we had to wear a scarf in church. We couldn't be altar boys or altar girls. They didn't exist. And there were so many laws that still discriminated against women. And I had been aware um, that, you know, the Irish suffragette movement had been quite strong at the beginning. But somehow, um, at the time of when I was growing up, we had lost that impetus. And uh, that was partly why I felt strongly about gender and human rights issues. Two years after Mary Robinson was born, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington stood for election to Dáil Éireann. She did not obtain sufficient votes to become a deputy. Two decades later, as Dáil Éireann marked half a century, Mary Robinson entered into political life as a senator. She changed legislation and minds during the 1970s. My mind is full of such contrasts and comparisons trying to keep my focus on the historic women. Lifetimes that overlap. Living into the 1970s, Catherine Clark, who had chaired peace negotiations, who had become Dublin's first woman, Lord Mayor, who had advocated for women and children and dependents, had been widowed, lost her income, her shops were looted. Yet interestingly, her sons never took up arms in the years of war that followed. I would like to understand how these modern changemakers use their skills. What is the work of women and peace building in the modern world? I'm meeting with the director of the Conflict Resolution Unit at the Department of Foreign Affairs. My name is Anya Hearns and I'm the director of the Conflict Resolution Unit here in the Department of Foreign Affairs. My current role involves developing a strategic approach to Ireland's peace building and conflict prevention interventions and a responsibility for the Women, Peace and Security Agenda and the Youth, Peace and Security Agenda. And this includes the implementation of Ireland's third national action plan on UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which deals with the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And Ireland has, of course, been dedicating ourselves to elevating the voices of women internationally. And particularly since we took our seat on the UN Security Council, we have been really pushing for women's full, equal and meaningful participation in all aspects of life. Our discussion, which is wide ranging, examines the skills of women in negotiation. In her diary in 1922, Rosamond Jacobs says that when she and her fellow delegates went to meet the men in power, they got the usual answers. I think of those historic meetings, maybe viewed as conversations with old friends, did those women negotiators, can I even call them that? Did they suggest a form of words that could have prevented war? Maybe women 100 years ago could never have achieved peace because of their position in society. To understand what skills women have then and now, Anya Hearns tells me about her experiences of peace building. In 2006, when I was head of the mission in uh, the Irish Embassy in Kampala, I was made chair of the Partners for Governance Group, um, a group of bilateral donors in Uganda made up of uh, EU member states, the UN Res Rep and other countries. 
I ended up being involved in a peace process in Juba, which was related to the northern Uganda conflict at the time. Having come from a working class background, um, having joined the service uh, at the age of, of 17, uh, and certainly I didn't see myself when I was growing up as, as ending up um, doing doing this role and indeed finding myself in, uh, you know, an international peacekeeping process, if you like, in, in Uganda. The experiences of women in positions of authority can at times bring challenges. I think that women are better able to anticipate and address areas and issues where there's division or that you can see something coming down the line that's uh, not going to be taken favorably by certain members of it. And as a result of that, I think that sort of foresight that women have, we're able to um, discuss it and say, well, you know, how are we going to deal with this when this comes up? When historians read records and look at formal official documents compiled from meetings, negotiations, all personal reflection is removed. Sometimes you can glean something in a notation, a penciled note in a margin. So when we seek to understand context, it's so important to understand those involved, their motivations. Biography becomes central to the writing of a historic narrative. So I ask Anya Hearns to tell me about her formative years. I was born in 1961 and in 1961 this was a time when women's lives had a completely different outlook. Um, women traditionally went to school, gave up work after children and indeed for young girls secondary education was probably for a lot of them the, the most that they would achieve and tertiary education was not on the cards for a large percentage of girls. And I would have been, I suppose, in this bracket initially. But um, I would have to say then in 1967, when Donica O'Malley, the Minister for Education, took that bold decision to make secondary education free for all, I believe that this had a huge impact for girls um, and it opened up more options for career. Anya Hearns joined the Department of Foreign Affairs in 1979. It was an era in which Ireland was changing and indeed the Irish Civil Service was also changing at that time because up until 1973, had I joined before then and got married, I, the marriage ban was in place and I would have had to leave after a year. Uh, however, when we joined the European Union, this marriage ban was lifted and also equal pay was coming in. So the benefits of joining the European Union for women in Ireland also had an impact on the civil service and the, the role of women and careers in the civil service opened up to women at that particular point in time. In 1979, we had 40 missions abroad. However, we only had two female heads of mission, which was roughly 5% of all missions. And later this year, we will be in the position where we will have 97 missions abroad and we'll have 39 female heads of mission. And that's 38%. So an increase of 33% over the 40 plus year period. Um, so that shows you really where we were when I came in in 1979 and where we've come to over those 40 plus years. Our conversation turns to a question of how well placed Irish women are to contribute in the here and now. Do we hold a unique understanding because of our past? I think it's it's in our genetic makeup as well in Ireland to be people who wish to solve conflict. We know the, the pain that it has caused, not just going back to 1916 and the Civil War, but also the troubles that we've had in Northern Ireland as well. So the troubles we've had on the island. A common phrase today is what's in the DNA. I think that so often we find strong women somewhere in the background. 
from my perspective, I suppose my father informed me that my grandmother was a member of Coming Amon, and I never followed that up because when I found out she had died, but she had never spoken about it during her life, and I found that very interesting. And for me to think that my grandmother was a member of Coming Amon, I ended up becoming a diplomat. In 2005, I was made head of mission uh, to the embassy in Kampala. And my next posting was to the embassy in Malawi as ambassador to Malawi in 2014. Malawi is in Southern Africa and it is fondly called the warm heart of Africa. It is a country which has not seen conflict, although it had a dictator, Dr. Hastings Banda, for a long number of years, which had a huge impact on the culture of the people. The people are extremely friendly. Um, we did not have any conflict issues there. However, there were lots of issues around inequality. And of course, Malawi is one of the poorest countries in the world. 100 years ago, poverty was so widespread in Ireland. Maud Gon McBride worked for the poor and for famine victims in the decades before 1922. She had spoken for those who were evicted, her work for the victims of war, highlighting the effects of war on women and children. Madam McBride. Evictions I saw in 1885 changed the whole course of my life, transforming me from a carefree society girl into a woman of set purpose. I was determined to do my share to free Ireland from the British Empire. The wholesale destruction of the little houses of the people by battering rams was going on all over the country. 360,000 people were evicted from their little homes. In her lifetime too, Mary Robinson has used her presence, her persona, to bring attention to the needs of others. She has travelled to centres of conflict. I had to go a number of times to Goma in the Democratic Republic of Congo, see women, women whose bodies were destroyed. It wasn't just a rape, it was destruction of the womb, it was destruction of women. And it continues. It continues at the moment in Tigray, in Ethiopia. It continues in so many parts of the world. I also worked particularly with a friend of mine, Binta Diop of Fam Africa Solidarity, who became the African uh, Union Commission's um, uh, uh, envoy for women, peace and security. We're very close friends. Um, and we worked in a number of countries um, in Africa on women, peace and security. And I remember in particular a number of visits to Liberia when Ellen Johnson Sirleaf became president and how important it was that she organized a conference in the fragile state of Liberia with help from women uh, from around the world. And I'll never forget the, uh, the, the impact that had on her country, but on all of us who witnessed the courage that it showed to you know, stand tall um, and recognize the role of women um, in, uh, in, in bringing about peace. Um, because often the television cameras focus on the bad guys talking to each other in a hotel room. And uh, very often it's women on the ground who are making that peace. The women involved in those peace delegations trying to prevent the Irish Civil War 100 years ago were also part of a global movement. Louis Bennett, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, Charlotte Despard, and others were connected to the women working for peace internationally. 
that had begun as a formal network during World War I. Hannah Sheehy Skeffington and Louis Bennett in 1915 were to attend the inaugural meeting of the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom, but were prevented when they were not issued passports. The Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, led by American Jane Adams, who in the years that followed remained committed to peace in Ireland. She was the sole female commissioner on the Commission for Conditions in Ireland in 1920, held in Washington, D.C. She was on the executive committee that fundraised for the Irish people, affected by those years of war. Its funds were administered by the White Cross. We documented this work as part of Manal 100, and we urge you to seek out our film, Toward America, on our website. This organisation has continued today. Irish woman Maria Butler, member of the New York State Bar, with a human rights degree from the London School of Economics, first worked in New York City at the UN Security Council at the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom, affectionately known as WILF, as director of the Peace Women Programme, later moving to work at the headquarters in Geneva as the Global Programme Director and Deputy Secretary. I asked the Kildare woman to describe herself. I guess I would describe myself as a curious advocate, a proud Irish woman, uh, a mom of two, and I've served and worked in the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom for 12 years, uh, working with women around the world, but really addressing root causes of violence and, and amplifying the voices of women for peace in New York, in the UN Security Council. I, I walked the corridors and knocked on the doors of, of diplomats, decision makers, to, to open space to listen to women who were experiencing and working for peace. And then I have overseen our global programs uh, for a number of years, disarmament, human rights, uh, crisis response and women, peace and security. We talk about what I've read in the Hannah Sheehy Skeffington papers in the National Library, that a century ago, these women were calling on mothers to exert their influence on the coming generation on behalf of the peace movement. In documents, they advocate an education programme that would foster in children and it is of the time, the principles of international brotherhood for social and moral development. We can see in the documents that they wish to create an institution such as the International Courts of Arbitration as a means of settling disputes between nations. 100 years ago, they wished to have practical policies that included national contributions to what they called world treasuries of literature, of art and science, to emphasise interdependence and universality of culture. We talk also of the work in times of crisis. For women 100 years ago, it was impending conflict. I asked Maria to tell me about her own experiences. Like working last year on uh, the evacuations from Kabul, Afghanistan, it was all done through WhatsApp and Signal and um, current technologies. So. I, you know, got a text on the 15th of August saying Taliban has entered eastern Kabul and I spent 10 days and nights uh, uh, trying to uh, coordinate evacuation of our office. Yeah, it's, it's somewhat different than what they did in 1922, but somewhat the same. You know, I was calling anyone and everyone I knew, writing letters, um, and then 
just really listening and and uh, looking for opportunities. So although a lot of the work we do in Wilf is like big picture and vision, I have been able to bring, I think it's a very Irish thing, this very practical strategist view to the work. Like how do we operationalize the work? How do we get money into Afghanistan the last six months? Maria, in our conversation, says working, but she also describes herself as serving. And in May of 2022, her peace building continues as executive director of the Nobel Women's Initiative, formed by six women who have won the Nobel Peace Prize. She will assist them to use their work, to use their prize, to take their visibility and to work for peace around the world. And it links back to Jane Addams too. So as you know, Jane Addams was the first American woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. In 1915, as part of the suffragette movement, but also in the world, in the height of World War I, women from across America and Europe came together in The Hague and uh, 1,136 of them from different countries, including the warring countries, including Germany. And they were really critical that they included women from those countries that were partaking in the war to discuss not only women's participation and the vote, which was part of the movement across the world, but the causes of violence, the causes of war. They set out if only the world could be a place and rules could be made where everyone's basic needs were met before luxury goods were shipped. They set out, we shouldn't create a arms industry, a weapons industry where there's profits because they already, they already said then that that will enable powerful countries to benefit, to profit from the deaths and murders of people around the world. They were like, the system is wrong. We know alternatives and we're going to work for them. Like they were really brave. This was so dangerous um, to talk about in your home, in the church, you know, and they were, they had a vision for an alternative world that was more equal. Equality, the words of the proclamation issued by the provisional government of the Irish Republic at Easter 1916, when they wrote of cherishing all the children equally that has been so often quoted over the past 100 years to evoke what we aspire to and often when we fall short. It was 50 years ago when the rights of single parents with no support from the state used the name Cherish for their organisation. Mary Robinson was one of the few women in the houses of the Oireachtas, a young senator teaching law at Trinity College when she was asked to become their president. I was very impressed by the way in which Cherish was formed because it was single mothers themselves. And it was very important that they decided on the kind of organization they wanted. And I was um, honored to be asked uh, to be president. I remember at the time uh, saying, you know, I'm, I'm too young to be president of anything. And I was told, no, this isn't about you. This is about you giving us um, some support, which I was very uh, happy to do. Mary Robinson is a woman who has given support, encouragement across the generations. I remember, you know, very vividly when I was, you know, nominated by the Labour Party, but ran as an independent candidate, how important friendship of women was and how many women, Sister Benvenuta, Sister Margaret McCurtain, wonderful women from all over Ireland, organised various 
meetings. Um, and that's why when I was elected president, I thanked uh, Manoana Heron, the women of Ireland, who instead of rocking the cradle, rocked the system. I think that's the uh, line that's most quoted from my presidency, but I'm proud of it. I was in Boise, Idaho, and a young woman in the audience came up afterwards. I could see her with a smile on her face, wanting obviously to shake my hand. So I actually came down from the small podium and she said, I want to shake your hand. You are my first vote. I was 19 at the time. And when I voted for you and told my father, he nearly killed me. So you, you got the whole sense of women crossing that to enable a woman to become president. And I was very appreciative. It, it sort of captured, uh, you know, that it was difficult, you know, to, to cross a party or, you know, vote in a different way, but so many women did. And of course, you can't become president unless men vote for you as well, which they did. But uh, I felt very honored and very supported. And I was determined uh, to walk tall and show that it was an advantage to be a woman um, when I was elected president. So when I was growing up, the women that stood out to me, of course, I was six when Mary Robinson was elected president in 1990, um, was women of the current time, was strong women in my family. My mom had set up a business with my father and they worked from our house. So I, I saw my grandmothers, I saw my aunts, I came from a, a, a very large farming background, all taking risks through the 80s and 90s to be equal in different ways in their homes, in their businesses. And those were the women that um, I, I learned from, actually. But also, I always had that sense of a global connection in my heart. I don't know. It just uh, it was, uh, you know, something that my family uh, fostered, too, and, and made us understand that we were citizens of this interconnected world. Maria was only 23 when she formed her own organisation. Growth Reaching Africa. Graw. How appropriate, the Irish word for love. I went and I was volunteering in communities, in, in very rural communities in Kenya, and living with a local family with no electricity and no water it was a very community-based work and going around on, on a bicycle to, to schools and supporting and doing uh, various activities. And, um, and I fell in love, I have to say, with the, with the place and with the community, but also with some of the women leaders I, I met. One of the women was called Diana. She was running a, a local community-based organization called Mafanikio. And when I left, I promised her we were going to come back to Ireland and we were going to support uh, five girls go to secondary school. And it, it worked like a, this web, again, like a web of solidarity or sisterhood that I, I had a, a role to kind of put a splash in to get started. But it sort of went itself in many ways. I think of Maud Gone McBride's campaign to feed the school children in Dublin a century ago. From Maria Butler's ambition to provide schooling for five girls to go to secondary school, Graw built a schools programme in Kenya, raised from voluntary contributions. 1,200 meals a day were served in four primary schools. I think I 
kept that deep sense of community love of the men and women that I, I sat with and drank tea with and I went to the funerals of their, their family members with me through the work in Wilf because so much of community development work changes people's lives but I definitely saw how this community's problems were were more national. It was about the land distribution laws, was about the conflicts between displaced communities and the host communities. And they could not be solved within the bubble of Khmer, this community. Everything and every place we work, it's, it's through these local women leaders because context is everything as, as we know and as we speak about, as we tell the Security Council and diplomats in Geneva and Dublin and other capitals, it is, they are the experts women living and working in, in occupied areas of Palestine, women living in North Korea, women living in uh, Colombia, they are the experts. And, and part of my work has been about opening doors and amplifying um, their, their voices, their analysis, and their solutions uh, in the international spaces. And it involves knocking on lots of doors. In 2000, during Mary Robinson's time as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, UN Resolution 1325 marked what has been described as a watershed moment when the international community recognised the particular impact of conflict on women and girls. Council Resolution 1325 is an extraordinarily important resolution. It was passed while I was High Commissioner in the year 2000 and it was not very actively followed up for a while. But when it became a way of engaging at national level um, that every country should implement a plan of action for uh, 1325, including Ireland. I chaired a, for quite a number of years, a kind of steering committee uh, where we gradually understood the full implications of that for Ireland. So when the Security Council recognised for the first time in 2000 what the women in 1922 had been saying for decades, um, it was a watershed moment, but it also, this resolution, recognises the slowness of the multilateral system, that it was built on great powers and patriarchy. Uh, so 1,324 resolutions were passed by the UN Security Council that didn't mention women, that didn't see their uh, place in war or conflict. And indeed, the resolution was important because it came from the grassroots, it came from the ground of women speaking up and speaking out, out of Beijing. You know, it was from Beijing, the women's platform from action that led eventually to the Security Council to say, this is the highest body of international peace and security, and it must not be silent on the realities of women. And women must have a have a political place and have meaningful participation in all aspects of of peacemaking. Wilf was there in one of the uh, small number of organizations in New York working to lobby for the resolution. It was about ending war. So some say, and uh, a friend of mine say, 1325 was not about making war safe for women, not only about making war safe, but about ending war. And um, it had a transformational goal. Anya Hearns tells me about the goals of Ireland's third national action plan. It's the implementation of Ireland's third national action plan on UN Security Council Resolution 1325, commonly called the WPS or Women, Peace and Security Agenda. 
I worked in the conflict resolution unit back in 2008 as well. And at the time, we were looking at uh, developing Ireland's first national action plan on the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And I, I really wanted to see what we should be doing, how how were we going to develop the plan and what were the key issues and what did we need to look at and, and what was the role of women in peace processes. So in preparation for that first plan and to, to ensure that we had a clear idea of where we wanted to go in our NAP, as we call it, National Action Plans, I decided that the, what we should look at is not just women on the island of Ireland, but also look at women in the Global South. Women from the island of Ireland met with women from Liberia in West Africa and the southeastern Asian nation of Timor-Leste. We brought women from the island of Ireland, from Liberia and from Timor-Leste. And we held three uh, seminars in each of those countries, looking at the different pillars of the, the resolution. So for example, in Northern Ireland, we had a week-long seminar talking about women's participation in peace processes and in, and in government following peace processes as well. When we went to Dili in Timor-Leste, we looked at protection of women because at that time, domestic violence was quite high there. And then when we went to Liberia, we looked at promotion of women um, in after peace processes. And as you will be aware, the women in Liberia were very uh, instrumental in their peace process. They went up to Accra and Ghana and basically locked all the men in and said, you're not coming out until you have a peace deal. We're not putting up with this anymore. How to understand events of a century ago. Women trying to avert war. Maria Butler has so much experience of being with those who are in areas of conflict and indeed impending conflict, as she tells me. Making sure communities are at that table, making sure that uh, victims, survivors of the war are at that table and not just the men holding the guns. That, that was the vision. And that work is still, uh, that implementation work is still a long, long way to go. But we've learned from Northern Ireland, the political party. Uh, we've learned from Colombian women how they set up different mechanisms. There have been huge learnings across the world from different movements. Yet I have to say the, the, the barriers and the resistance to respecting women's equal space is still very much present in the, uh, in the rooms of power. For Mary Robinson, now chair of the Elders, she has spoken of how it was Nelson Mandela that brought them together in the belief that together they could be stronger. The change happens when people collectively take action. These are the actions of the elders. First of all, calling it a direct violation of the UN Charter, not acceptable. Secondly, when President Putin referenced that he was going to put his forces on nuclear alert, the elders are very concerned um, that we're not tackling nuclear non-proliferation the way we should be. And we've got a policy paper on that. So we made a strong statement um, uh, you know, that that is not acceptable. And thirdly, we've called now for a tribunal to gather evidence about the crime of aggression, uh, because we believe that this is the way in which it could be captured. Um, there is going to be, before the International Criminal Court, uh, a gathering of evidence about crimes against humanity and war crimes. But it's very hard for those to reach the top, if I could put it that way. But aggression is the crime of a leader if it can be established. And that would be a way of bringing Putin himself um, before a tribunal. And unfortunately, 
the global economic system that we have today, um, you know, 100 years later, has been so much embedded with who profits from war and how how much money can be made in the, in the war context and the drivers of war. And they set out then a vision for a vision for a more equal world and a more just world, whether it's systemic uh, violence that's connected with profits or or militarism or or other aspects. And, and they've also been able to mobilize locally and globally. So I believe that we can't depoliticize peace in some ways. It is about how we want to live, how we want the constitution, who gets power, who doesn't. This is what peace is about. It's about um, it's about reforming how our society works. It's not one moment, one signature. It's also the everyday negotiations of who gets to walk down this street, um, how how our children go to school and with who. This These are the actions of peace. So to me, seeking peace is definitely political and about power and about recognizing who has power and who doesn't. And also these very practical actions about following up on, on everyday uh, tasks. And I, I think what we've learned throughout history and throughout those providing alternative voices, those providing voices for nonviolence and peace need to be listened to because the machinery of war, the machinery of capitalism, the machinery of exclusion of rights is really um, well-funded, let's say. And those alternative voices are there. They're there today in Ukraine and in many places. Ukraine, along with Ireland, had its own branch of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom 100 years ago. Only 23 countries had branches, although there were many corresponding countries. The women who continued to advocate for peace considered Ireland's group so important that in 1926, Ireland hosted the Fifth Congress. It seems appropriate now to quote Jane Addams' writings. She argued that social advance depends as much upon the process through which it was secured as upon the result itself. And what of Ireland's role? Anya Hearn speaks to me of the importance of getting women's issues into peacekeeping mandates as each country debates. And uh, during our presidency of the council last September, we set a record for the number of women briefers that we brought to council meetings during that particular point in time. And I think, you know, when you hear firsthand women's experiences and you look at their needs, this is key to addressing some of the most pressing issues that we face today. However, there's just one piece of the puzzle, I suppose, in that we need to go further and we need to not only hear the women's voices and their views, but we also need to ensure that women are engaged directly in the design, the implementation and the appraisal of all aspects of peace, security and political decisions. They must be able to participate fully, as we say, and they must be free from fear and confident in the knowledge that their work is invaluable to building sustainable and peaceful societies. And the work to achieve this starts really on the ground at the grassroots level with grassroots women peace builders and young women especially working to shape their community. I think that for so long in our reading of Irish history, 
that we've seen women as outside formal processes, these discussions have been so important for me. Maria and I discuss what has changed and what has stayed the same. You might not have the explicit, you know, go back home, go back to the kitchen language that women have faced, but you still don't have the invitations coming, the equality, the the respect around the table. Um, and this passive resistance, I think that women face uh, the closing of the doors is something we have to speak about and um, and address and, and find ways to ensure that peace tables are more inclusive because being more inclusive means they're more sustainable. And that's what we've learned from Bosnia and the women of Ukraine, the women of Cameroon, um, is that there must be connection with the lived experiences of, of women in, and men in communities working for peace. It's women who remain behind when conflict starts. They keep the home fires burning, so to speak. And it's women who know what the pressure points are. And to me, they're, they're good indicators of an early warning system when there's trouble in communities. So they have the ability to change they are confident when they know what it is that they need to do as well, but they do need to be heard. And uh, I think women are great agents of change when they're given the power to do so. I'd like to maybe um, end with a strong memory of my friend Ivan Boland being asked, um, commissioned rather, to write this wonderful poem, Our Future Will Become the Past of Other Women, uh, to mark the 100th anniversary of the suffragette movement. Uh, she was commissioned by the Royal Irish Academy and by the Irish uh, Permanent Mission in New York, uh, my friend Geraldine Byrne-Nason. And she read the poem in the General Assembly and women in the General Assembly. And I just like to, to read the last four lines because I think they connect the podcast Manor 100 with what's happening now in Ukraine in particular and the brave women of Ukraine. And Ivan ended her poem with, To each one, give me your hand. It has written our future. Our future will become the past of other women. Our island that was once settled and removed on the edge of Europe is now a bridge to the world. And now we share this day with women everywhere for those who find the rights they need to be hard won, to be not guaranteed and not easily given. For each one of them, we have a gift today, a talisman, the memory of these Irish women who struggled and prevailed, for whose sake we choose these things from their date to honor, to remember and to celebrate. All those who called for it, the vote for women. All those who had the faith that voices can be raised and can be heard. All those who saw their hopes become the law. All those who woke in a new state, flowering from an old nation and found justice no longer blind, inequity set aside and freedom redefined. Thank you very much.
This was the fourth Manol 100 Centenary podcast, part of the Decade of Centenaries programme, the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltox, Sports and Media. This episode was made with the assistance of the Department of Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll tune in again.